enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. Gregorian calendar observing folks. It's 2018 now, and I absolutely did not get an episode up on January 1st. That would have been a superhuman fate, considering all the shenanigans that happened during the holidays and this weird liminal transition time where I write the date wrong for months on end. It was, unintentionally, a very intense time for me, so I'm happy to get back to talking about space with you. I'm particularly excited for this episode because I'll be talking about something I've been hearing about since I was very, very little. Astronauts. I probably wanted to be an astronaut for, like, a few days when I figured out it was a job. I definitely built pillow fort spaceships on my couch and ran around making spaceship noises. It's a pretty common aspiration as a child, and then I think I learned that space is a vacuum, and it's cold and empty and dark, and those are three things I didn't want to experience as a child, so... I let that dream go. Instead, I do a podcast about that cold, dark place that I don't want to visit, and I'm happy. It makes those folks who really do want to go out there and explore those vast, empty unknowns all the more amazing to me. There's a lot to say about astronauts. Humans have gone up into, and returned relatively safely from, outer space since Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, made a 108-minute orbital flight in the Vostok 1 spaceship in 1961. Before I clicked on more reliable links, Wikipedia managed to tell me that Gagarin was 5'2", which is, shockingly, shorter than me. I'm not quite ready to talk the history of spaceflight, though. This may seem out of order, but I want to talk about actually surviving in space for long periods of time. I want to talk about the little details that go into living and working in zero-g, or, really, microgravity. Gravity in outer space is the distortion of space-time by large objects. The effects of gravity are wide-reaching. Objects orbiting Earth are still subject to 90% of Earth's gravity, but they stay orbiting due to their speed and trajectory. Objects in the International Space Station look like they're floating, not because they're in zero gravity, but because they are in free fall. If you took physics in high school and have a very good memory, you might recall that if there are no other factors acting on an object, all objects fall at the same rate, no matter their difference in mass. That's what's happening on a spacecraft. The spacecraft, the crew, and any objects on board are all falling towards, but also around Earth as they orbit. And because they're all falling together, any unsecured items and crew members appear to float when compared to the spacecraft itself. It's a fun, cool trick that actually makes me feel nauseous just thinking about it. How do you live in a state of perpetual falling, in that state of microgravity, usually for months on end? There's a rich history to be mined here of what astronauts of the past have used. 
The Smithsonian Air and Space Museum had a great library of resources on the history of astronauts and what they got to take up in space, mostly focusing on the Apollo flights, which orbited the Earth or went to the moon. I have heard the anecdotal and horrifying story about how out of touch men of science were when it came to feminine hygiene products and how they asked Sally Ride, the first woman in space, if 100 tampons for a seven-day mission was the correct amount to pack for her. Just her. It wasn't. That's way too many, and she said so. (laughs) I'm going to try and stick with info that was gathered in the past ten years, though. It's still really interesting, and it raises a lot of questions that I had never considered, such as, how do astronauts shower? What do you do about the fact that you're in a ship with a lot of exposed wires and pipes and tubes and electrical equipment, and you have to have water or else you'll die? How do you pack enough food for, in fact, how many people are living in outer space at any one time right now? What kind of comfortable housing options are available to you out there? What are you doing with your time when you're in space? How long do missions last? What can you pack and not pack? What are you wearing up there? How can you do push-ups to keep fit when there's nothing to press against without causing you to immediately float away? Let's see if I can answer these questions in our time together. First up, I will admit I went to my old friend Maslow's Hierarchy of Human Needs when I was thinking about what to cover in this episode, and I stuck down there at the very bottom base level of the pyramid of things that humans need to survive. The base physiological needs, that's what I want to talk about. You have to take most of these basic needs with you when you go to space, because space is mostly emptiness, a vast vacuum where humans can't survive without a lot of effort and supplies. Which is fine. Humans can't survive any environment without effort and supplies. This is just a whole new level of careful planning. Let's begin with air. The atmosphere of Earth is a mix of 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, And the leftover 1% is trace amounts of argon, neon, helium, hydrogen, nitrous oxide, ozone, and whatever else is around you at the time. Greenhouse gases, usually. Those fuckers get everywhere. Now, folks can go to space for various reasons and durations, but I want to focus on the crews that are out there for the long haul, weeks or months. It's a bad idea to spend more than a year out in space, though, as it will come up later. The best place to spend a long time in space, that rhymed, uh, the best place to be is on the International Space Station. Launched in stages starting in 1998, this is a modular space station that can sustain three to seven people, or up to ten people if there's a docking ship attached to give folks more room. The most recent pressurized module was fitted in 2011, but components are scheduled to be launched in, hello, this new year, 2018, and next year in 2019. Basically, they send up pieces and assemble them in orbit, which is such a cool way of doing it, and it makes total sense. Spaceflight has risks, and if you lose a piece of the International Space Station, well, at least you didn't lose all of it. The folks in charge of the ISS expect the station to remain in use until 2028, and I hope that, like all of our telescopes have so far, the International Space Station lasts even longer. Life support systems on the International Space Station supply oxygen, remove carbon dioxide from the cabin's atmosphere, and prevent the uh, pungent and very human gases, like ammonia and acetone, from accumulating. Also, since astronauts are up there in space and running experiments that might create vapors, the ISS life support systems get rid of those as well. 
The primary source of oxygen on the ISS comes from water electrolysis, which is caused by running a current of electricity through water. Each molecule of water is made of H2O, or two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. A current separates these atoms, and they recombine as gaseous hydrogen and oxygen. The International Space Station crews also get their oxygen from pressurized storage tanks. Plants would be an awesome way to get breathable air in space, and I imagine that they're experimenting with it right now, because my friend getting her PhD told me that there's an up-and-coming field called astrobiology. But according to Jay Perry, the aerospace engineer who worked on the International Space Station Environment Control and Life Support Systems, quote, the chemical mechanical systems are much more compact, less labor-intensive, and more reliable than a plant-based system, end quote. All produce being grown on the International Space Station is there as an experiment, not for functional use as oxygen generators. Folks on the International Space Station can breathe. Great. The human body can't survive more than a couple of minutes without air, so that's a relief. The next thing you need, need, need as a human being if you're going to survive more than a week in space, it's the same thing you need if you're going to survive more than a week anywhere. Water. Now, we're getting into an issue with microgravity here. You aren't weightless in space, you still have the same mass you did on Earth, but gravity isn't acting on you in the same way. You float. Also, everything floats. That means the only thing keeping liquids together in space is surface tension. Did you ever do that experiment in school where you use an eyedropper on a penny? You had to count how many drops of water you could get on the penny before the penny overflowed. Because of surface tension, you can get more than you'd expect on there, and a little dome of water builds up. This also happens in other observable ways in nature, the way water beads up on a window when it's raining, for example. That's surface tension at work. Usually the surface tension is sticking the water to a surface, but in space, the water is all just sticking to itself. In an enclosed environment like the International Space Station, with delicate machinery and many different little tests that the astronauts are carrying out in microgravity, you have to keep track of your water. A lot of it is sent up in supply craft, and it's just in a pouch, and you drink it like a Capri Sun, but you use water for more than drinking. Folks gotta get clean up in space. That's where care and ingenuity come in. There are quite a few videos of astronauts from various missions on the ISS showing you how they keep themselves clean. Canadian astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield used pre-soaped water to wash his hands in space when he was up there on Expedition 35 back in 2013. And American astronaut Karen Nyberg demonstrated how to wash your hair with a little squeeze bag of water, no-rinse shampoo, and a comb. She let her longer hair air dry, and the life support systems that manage the air on the International Space Station also take care of the excess humidity created by the water evaporating from hair, skin, clothes... Whatever you're washing, so long as it's not sopping wet. Showers are a wet towel, though. You don't want an entire body's worth of cleaning water floating around. Did you ever eat freeze-dried ice cream at some kind of space or science camp, and the counselor told you it's what they eat in space? I did, and I don't remember it liking it very much, but I didn't like a lot of foods when I was younger. <laughs> past space exploration organizations did send astronauts up with freeze-dried, vacuum-sealed food packets back in the day, and foods in tubes or pre-portioned bite-sized pieces like Soylent Green. But a lot of work has always gone into planning, designing, and implementing meals in space. Think about getting something up into orbit. The International Space Station is orbiting Earth right now, between 205 and 270 miles up, or 
330 to 435 kilometers if you're using the metric system. It completes a little over 15 orbits every day. It maintains its orbit with reboost maneuvers using the engines of the Zvezda module, or visiting spacecraft. The Zvezda service module was contributed by the Russians, and it was the first module designed for people to live in it. In addition to a living space, it also houses life support systems, electrical power distribution, data processing systems, flight control systems, and propulsion systems that keep the International Space Station up above the atmosphere, up where the air is non-existent. To stay up, though, the International Space Station can't become too heavy. Microgravity probably helps, but crew and supplies have to maintain a certain weight. I'd wager that's why the International Space Station's distance from Earth varies by a factor of 65 miles, or 105 kilometers. Weight comes in with docking supplies, shifts, and crew rotations, and it leaves as crew members leave and as supplies are reduced. All this to say that food can't take up too much of the International Space Station's allotted weight. It also has to last. There are no refrigerators in space. There's an oven to heat food up, but that's kind of it. You can't make crumbs, either, because they might mess up the delicate instruments in the ISS. Astronauts on NASA's Mercury missions from 1961 to 1963 complained about the food, and I would just have loved to be on the creative team that worked so hard to bring astronauts shrimp cocktails in space, which were available to the second group of NASA astronauts, the Project Gemini team, in 1965. After Project Gemini came Project Apollo, which did put a man on the moon in 1969, and then we're getting into Skylab territory, which I want to address in a minute. Let's get back to food, though. Meals are prepackaged and tightly sealed to prevent spoiling. Astronauts get to pick their meals, with a lot of input from nutritionists who are there to make sure that each individual astronaut meets their daily caloric needs, as well as nutritional needs, like getting enough vitamin A and such. Once again, we're trying to prevent scurvy, because astronauts are out there for months. Swapping meals definitely happens up on the International Space Station, though. I can't read other languages besides English very well, and I don't know any Russian, so I only know what kinds of menu items Americans can choose from, and they're not that interesting. What is interesting is that you can't take bread up there. Too many crumbs. There's a special technique for making and sealing tortillas, though, so that they can last 18 months without getting stale or moldy, and astronauts spread peanut butter and jelly on that to fulfill their sandwich cravings. There are condiments, like ketchup, mustard, and mayonnaise, but salt and pepper are only available in liquid form. Again, they don't want food particles or spice particles getting into equipment or into astronauts' eyes or other orifices. You do want spicy food, though. Being in microgravity dulls your taste buds, according to the European Space Agency's article on the International Space Station crew life. Utensils stick to the dining table with magnets so you can use forks, knives, and spoons in space, as long as you're careful. All food packaging is designed to make the food easy to eat in space, so your soup's in a squeeze bottle and your cooked spinach is clumpy enough that stray pieces won't float away in the microgravity. And the packaging is all disposable, so you load it up into the trash storage when you're done. That rather neatly and delicately segues me into the juvenile portion of the podcast, Waste in Space. There's a lot of prepackaging that happens. You want to be able to access a thing and then not have to wash it, so no plates and very few utensils exist. There's a lot of trash buildup as a result, but that all gets taken back to Earth when a cruise mission is complete or a, sp- a supply run occurs. Let's get to what we all want to know. How do you piss in space? Well, carefully is the first step. 
You're in microgravity, so you need to use leg restraints to keep yourself on the toilet. And then it's like sitting on a vacuum cleaner, sucking all air and waste into a space wastewater tank. I picture a more intense version of an airplane toilet, but I don't know if I'm right. Here's a fun, terrible fact. Each astronaut has a personal urinal funnel that has to be attached to the bathroom hose adapter, like switching out which attachment is on your vacuum. Liquid's hard to handle in space. We already discussed that. Anyway, the wastewater tank, like so much of the International Space Station's human survival equipment, is designed to reuse. Wastewater from, yes, pee, and any humidity or water condensed from the air is either purified and reused directly for drinking, or it's broken down by electrolysis to provide fresh oxygen. Solid human waste is collected, compressed, and stored for disposal. I couldn't find details on where because I did not look very hard for that information. Another disturbing factor I hadn't thought of, but your internal organs are also subject to microgravity. Your bowels are floating. Your tummy is floating. I wonder if swallowing food is harder when gravity isn't giving you and your esophagus that extra helping hand. And at the other end, well, I'm painting a very bad picture here. Let's move on. Clothing. It's kind of a waste product in space, too. Clothing is designed to be worn for three days straight and then thrown away. I guess into the trash storage with the food containers. What's kind of cool, though, is that every mission to the International Space Station has had its own individual patch. It's an exclusive club, the number of people who have lived up in space, and you get a little insignia that shows you're a part of such a cool, elite group. Spacewalks are a thing, though. They happen when you need to repair or adjust things outside of the International Space Station, and sometimes there are exterior experiments. It's a really long process, though. It takes three hours to totally prep and get into the outfit, which is indeed a spacesuit. This was kind of fascinating, though. I follow former International Space Station resident Chris Hadfield on Tumblr, and he posts every now and again, and the other day he had a post that was a shot of the inside of a spacesuit helmet, and apparently there's a place to affix your own personal itchy sponge, which you can use to itch or wipe your nose. It's on the rim of the helmet, and you just kind of stick your neck out and you rub your nose on it while your head's inside the helmet in that big bubble. I'm really into these little details that I had never considered before. Like, you can't scratch your face inside of a spacesuit helmet, so how do you make that more comfortable for the astronaut who's spending hours inside of that suit? The more time we spend in space, the more these sort of workarounds are going to appear, I think. Just so you know, ISS is on mission crew number 54 right now, with a crew of six. NASA astronauts Joe Acaba, Mark Vandehe, and Scott Tingle, Roscosmos cosmonauts Alexander Mishurkin and Anton Shkaplerov, and Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency astronaut Norishige Kanai. I guess I'm torturing myself this episode with the names, but here we go. I sincerely apologize for any linguistic butchering on my part. Yes, there have been 54 mission crews on the ISS. They all have Twitters, in case you want to follow them. There are always at least three people on the ISS. The mission lengths vary. For this crew, Vandehe, Akaba, and Masurkin are scheduled to remain aboard the station until February 2018, so coming up, and Tingle, Shkaplerov, and Kanai are scheduled to return to Earth in June. Incidentally, Tingle and Kanai are on their first mission to space. 
NASA has a pretty steady update schedule on what everyone's working on in space, so if you're curious, I'll post a link in the show notes on Tumblr. That's fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com, and you can see what the people are up to up there. Astronauts are in charge of running various tests and doing a bunch of different experiments while they're up in the International Space Station. They are also test subjects themselves. Various space organizations are curious about what happens to the human body when it's in outer space. There are desires to get to Mars at some point, and while that point is maybe further than Elon Musk thinks it is with his Mars One project, which I mentioned in the episode on planets, episode 8, any information about how to keep people safer when they're in outer space is important information to have. The human body needs to be protected in space. Without our atmosphere reducing solar and interstellar radiation and suffering from the effects of microgravity, humans might not survive the three years it would take to travel to Mars in a spaceship. Astronauts who go up for six months lose bone mass, their muscles atrophy, vision problems emerge, and their blood gets redistributed throughout their body in ways that can cause the walls of the human heart to shrink. Humans evolve to survive a very specific type of gravity, and removing that gravitational pull downwards means that the way blood moves, the way muscles move, and bones and ligaments work, all of that is changed. Astronauts are also exposed to 30 times the radiation of a person living on Earth, which increases their risk for developing cancer. It's the tests that occupy most of the astronauts' time, though, and hopefully that distracts from all of these worrying health concerns that may or may not have lifetime effects on the people we send up to the International Space Station. They know the risks, they accept them, and they have work to do. I found an article on Tumblr on Labor Day uh, that mentioned the first labor strike in space, and it's the crew of the fourth Skylab mission, an all-rookie team from NASA consisting of Commander Gerald Carr, science pilot Edward Gibson, and pilot William Pogue, that all of the ISS crews can thank for their fairly reasonable work schedules. This crew was sent up to Skylab, which was the exclusively American-run precursor to the International Space Station, in 1973. This was every crew member's first mission to space, and that definitely contributed to how much difficulty they had with the schedule they'd been assigned. They were working 16-hour days on a range of experiments housed in very different parts of Skylab, and they were falling behind from the start. NASA had not factored in the time it would take to move from experiment to experiment, or how long it would take to readjust to working on a new task that required different skills to complete. Crew members were told that they would have to give up their rest days to complete these tasks, as other crews had all been able to complete the work. Carr told Mission Control, quote, On the ground, I don't think we would be expected to work a 16-hour day for 85 days, and so I really don't see why we should even try to do it up here. End quote. But they didn't listen. So, six weeks into the mission, on December 28th, the crew mutinied. For one full day, they turned off communications and did not work. Pogue recalls spending this time looking at the Earth and at the vastness of the space just outside their window. All of the crews we send up there today must spend at least some of their time observing this magnificent, very unusual view. The strike was over on December 29th, and Carr spoke to Mission Control, who compromised by reducing their workload, altering schedules for crew comfort and rest, and giving the crew more control over planning. But that was the only mission that Carr, Gibson, and Pogue ever made to outer space. NASA grounded them permanently. It takes a lot of work and a lot of courage, determination, and commitment to make it into the astronaut program, and it's pretty tragic that this was the only time these men made it up there. 
All subsequent missions have had more reasonable schedules, though. Their sacrifice has benefited later astronauts, and that's a noble thing. They're people, after all. Astronauts are already in extreme risk, subject to tests as we study human physical and psychological endurance in space. Give them time to stare out the window, or take a guitar into space like Chris Hadfield did during his time on the International Space Station. They're somewhere so few people ever get to travel. Let them experience that rare, fleeting beauty while they can. Exercising in space is mandatory. And really, it's the smartest thing you can do to stay functioning. In microgravity, heck, in any situation where you're weightless, the human body loses both muscle mass and bone density. A few hours of daily exercise helps to keep some tone in muscles that otherwise don't see much usage. In addition to keeping you toned, exercise also helps relieve what are called space snuffles. When your bodily fluids are no longer acted upon by gravity, they tend to accumulate in your head, so I guess it feels like having a bit of a cold the whole time you're on the International Space Station. When you're in space, according to various astronauts, you tend to adopt a fetal position as you move about. You drag yourself through hallways with your arms, and you certainly aren't using your legs much. You're floating most of the time, after all. Chris Hadfield did a video of himself singing David Bowie's Space Oddity, and in that video you can get a sense of what the interior of the International Space Station is like. I'll include a link to the video in the show notes, but I can't help from mentioning a few details that stood out to me. So first of all, Hadfield isn't wearing shoes. He's got socks on the whole time. This makes total sense. You're not going to be walking on anything rough. Why not be as soft and comfy as possible while you float around? He also spent a significant portion of the video singing in a large hallway of the International Space Station, and he kept himself centered in the room and in the shot by using these blue bars mounted on the floor, ceiling, and walls. I'm only using the terms floor and ceiling because it looks like the walls have laptops mounted on these arm swivels, and there are all these lockers and old-timey recorders stuck into the walls as well. Hadfield was able to stand up, or maybe it's more accurate to say that he could float in a completely upright position in the hallway, but the walls were closer together, so it was kind of a rectangle shape. Hatfield was also wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and they were floating away from his body, which was odd to see, but it makes sense when you think about it. There's no force acting on them. They're falling just as fast as he is, so they kind of balloon out around him without bunching up anywhere. I feel like anyone who's worked on a submarine would recognize this kind of layout of a space station. Every square inch does something, and ideally it'll do several things. Lots of switches and knobs and readouts everywhere. Everything's from the 90s, and it looks that way. I'm getting away from exercise in space, though. That's important for these people to do. They gotta stay somewhat fit, or else transitioning back to Earth and walking around in that gravity is going to be almost impossible. Incidentally, if you're curious, Hatfield wrote a book about his time as an astronaut and his two spacewalks, and it's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. I read excerpts from an interview with him, and his perspective on what it's like to see space all around you, see the curvature of the Earth and all its wonders, it was really moving. A part I really liked was when he said, quote, The contrast of your body and your mind inside essentially a one-person spaceship, which is your spacesuit, And you're inexplicably in between what is just a pouring glory of the world roaring by silently next to you. Just the kaleidoscope of it. It takes up your whole mind. It's like the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen just screaming at you on the right side. And when you look left, 
It's the whole bottomless black of the universe, and it goes in all directions. It's like a huge yawning endlessness on your left side, and you're in between these two things and trying to rationalize it to yourself and trying to get some work done. Writing books about what being in space is like is kind of catching. Scott Kelly, an astronaut who went up for a year as part of a test on what happens to human bodies in space, wrote a book about his own experience and how it feels to return to gravity after living in a state of microgravity for months, or in his case, a year on end. That book is called Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. There was an excerpt published in the Sydney Morning Herald on October of last year, 2017, and I'll link it in the show notes, too. It talks more about what the effect of space travel might be on humans, which was why he was sent up for a year as a test. And it's interesting, but it's not super relevant to what I wanted to talk about today. And we're almost done with what I wanted to talk about, so let's close out with a nice, soothing discussion of astronauts and sleep. Sleeping is obviously important. Well, now that the fine folks who participated in the Skylab labor strike of 1973 made it obvious, sleep is still important. I want you to try and imagine it, though. Sleeping in microgravity freefall. You have a sleeping bag. You gotta hook it to something so you don't float around in your sleep and bump things. There are little crew cabins just big enough for one person where you can clip your sleeping bag, but really the whole station is open for sleeping in because this is a, da- a set downtime for sleep. You want to be careful and pick a spot near a ventilator fan, though. Even if it's drafty, in space, warm air does not rise. This means that astronauts in badly ventilated sections of the International Space Station may end up surrounded by a bubble of their own exhaled carbon dioxide. It would be somewhat like what happens if you do that age-old, very disproven trick for panic attacks and breathe into a paper bag. You get oxygen starvation. The best-case scenario is you wake up gasping for air with a massive headache because your blood oxygen levels are too low. So, you've hooked your sleeping bag near a fan. It's loud everywhere on the ship as the fans work to circulate the oxygen that the astronauts need to breathe to survive, so maybe you get some earplugs. A college roommate of mine liked to sleep with those earbud headphones in. Maybe you can try that. You'll probably want some eye coverings, too, because the International Space Station experiences 15 dawns a day as it orbits the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour. You get a sunrise or sunset every 45 minutes. Reminds me of the little prince, how he lived on such a small planet that all he had to do was move his chair a few feet forward and he'd get to watch the sunset again and again and again. All the sensory deprivation devices in the world, or off the world, won't help you hide from the station-wide alarm that rings in the new day, though. That's all I have so far for you on astronauts and living long-term in space. They have to breathe and bathe and eat in orbit, but they're also up there to work and exercise, and they're gifted with the opportunity to see the wonder of the entire world stretched out before them. This doesn't feel like a comprehensive enough overview, but I hope it opens your eyes to how strange space truly can be, and all the details of living that we take for granted in our atmosphere with our gravity and our abundance of elements... For the next episode, let me know if you want to hear more about astronauts. I could go into their history more. I mentioned Skylab and early NASA missions, but I could definitely go into more detail. Or I could move on to something else entirely. Any of the stuff that I brought up before and then dropped as something shiny and new came along. Send me some suggestions on Tumblr or tweet at me on Twitter at HD in the Void, all one word. You can subscribe on iTunes to make sure that you catch new episodes on the weeks where I mess up and misplan and have to push it back sorry. I would love it if you threw me a rating and maybe even a review too, if you enjoy the show. 
I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it floats me in the most peculiar way. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to float you too. The next episode will be up on January 22nd. You can find my sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off.